Welcome back to the Pregnant Podcast, where we cover how many modern families are created today with the help of science and technology. Today's episode, Welcome to the Future of Fertility, is presented by Tomorrow, whose mission is to safeguard life's most precious cells using their technology to bring a new standard of care to the management of frozen eggs and embryos. Learn more by visiting tomorrow.org. These days, IVF feels ubiquitous. At least in industrialized countries, everyone seems to know someone who has had a baby thanks to IVF or have conceived or have tried to conceive this way with Petri dishes, doctors, embryologists, labs, and, well, many bills, lots of tissues, and even more hope. At the time of this recording in spring of 2022, IVF is only 43 years old, and in the U.S., it recently turned 40 as my first guest, the first American, quote, test tube baby, Elizabeth Jordan Carr, celebrated a birthday. The doctors said to my parents, you're never going to have a child of your own. Fast forward, she goes for a follow-up checkup to her OBGYN. And he looks at her and throws a brochure across the table to her and says, I just came back from a conference. I learned about this thing in the UK called IVF. There's a couple who wants to start a program here in Norfolk, Virginia. I think you should apply. Here I am. Egg freezing and cryopreservation have made it so people can now freeze their eggs, sperm, and embryos for 40 or more years into the future, and so that people who want to preserve their fertility due to cancer treatments, life plans, or other factors will have that option. Where and how will all these precious cells be stored? What will the future of fertility look like? That's the topic of this special Pregnish podcast episode in honor of our innovation series. And I'm thrilled to do three segments in today's Future Fertility episode, starting with where it began, looking at where it's going and what we can expect. With all this change in demand, we will also consider how to have our paperwork, files, and specimens in order so that we're protected as we plan our future families. I had to start this episode with the first U.S. test tube baby, the first IVF American baby, Elizabeth Jordan Carr. Welcome back to the Pregnanush Podcast. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. It's amazing to me. I know we've spoken, obviously, you were on a previous episode. You literally would not be across from me if it weren't for IVF and science. I know. Crazy to think about, right? It's pretty crazy to think about. And I think people are often surprised how new it is. I mean, it may seem like, in a way, because it's everywhere, but... That's what we're really going to talk about in your lifetime. What have you seen change? So can you bring us back to the the very beginning of your story for those who didn't hear our first episode or don't know it? Sure, absolutely. So yeah, it's it's really my parents' story of how I got here. So my parents, when they got married, they were young and wanted to have a family, couldn't do so. Basically, my mother had some scar tissue from appendix surgery that got botched. And that scar tissue is actually what impacted her fallopian tubes. So fast forward, uh, she gets pregnant, can't stay pregnant because she has an eptopic or tubal pregnancy. This happened two more times, which is terrifying to think about if you know anything about eptopic pregnancies and internal bleeding and everything else. Um, And so her doctor actually said, uh, we need to remove your tubes. 
And essentially, you know, fallopian tubes are or were an essential part of getting pregnant. And so the doctors said to my parents, you're never going to have a child of your own. Fast forward, she goes for a follow-up checkup to her OBGYN. And he looks at her and throws a brochure across the table to her and says, I just came back from a conference. I learned about this thing in the UK called IVF. There's a couple who wants to start a program here in Norfolk, Virginia. I think you should apply. Here I am. (laughs) (laughs) You you became the poster child for IVF. Of course, now I have a science baby. Many of us have IVF babies. But what I've loved about your story and just hearing directly from you who experienced this, there's a lot of pressure on you as the first, right? Yeah, so much so that I created the term IVF spokesbaby. It's a totally made-up term, but that's what I've felt like my entire life. It was very aware from a very young age to me that everybody was waiting to see if I came out looking and sounding like everybody else because they didn't understand back then if there were health implications before IVF. What did they think when, and we know, again, it's a misnomer, test tube babies, it's a Petri dish, not a test tube, but that's used. But what did they think about how you you were created? What did you hear about? how you were created. Oh my goodness. Well, not just back then, but I still hear it today of like, what do you think about being grown in a tube? Which is wildly inaccurate. I actually just last week had a reporter ask me, you know, about the intricacies of IVF. And I kind of stopped them and said, whoa, 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 you're overcomplicating this. I said, I learned a sentence when I was seven years old to explain the whole process. Because essentially the only difference between me and a baby that's conceived, and I hate the word naturally, but it's the only word we have right now in our, our vocabulary to describe it, is that fertilization happened in a Petri dish. That's the only difference. That's it. Yeah, the egg and sperm still had to get together, get together, <laughs> hang out, <laughs> make the embryo. Right. But, but, you know, the average person does not know how babies are made. And actually, I think the gift of having a science baby, my three-year-old walks around, well, I've been, you have too, to so many fertility conferences. Sperm swag is all over our house. So much so sperm swag. So much sperm swag. But we have a sperm and an egg on our fridge. Actually, one day she said, Mama, is that you? Look at the egg with a happy face. I said, but you know, she understands yeah. that the, the egg comes from a woman, the sperm comes from a from a man, mm-hmm. and she's three. But I will tell you, the average person probably doesn't know that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I mean, there's still some of that kind of misinformation that people, you know, there's more education needed, obviously. And so I'm always willing to sit, you know, in my book, there are no stupid questions. Because if you have the question, Somebody else has the question. And so I'm always happy to answer everything and anything. Nothing's off limits, really. I love that. And so what have you seen in the 40 years? Because basically, since you took your first breath, the attention was on you, and it was part of your consciousness to be here as a science baby. But what has changed through the decades as we look at the past and then you know, later we'll talk about the future? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So much has changed. In one way, so much has changed, and in another way, not a lot has changed. Um, So in the ways that IVF in particular have changed, Dr. Georgiana, really, who helped bring me into this world, um, 
was on the forefront of modern IVF in the U.S. So many people don't realize that IVF here in the U.S. was really the first time that hormone protocols came into play because the first IVF baby in the world was still done on a natural cycle. So that was kind of like, that's innovation number one, right? Is modern IVF using hormone stimulation, as we still do today, started back when I was born. Then you kind of move into, I remember when they figured out how to do ICSI. And for those who don't know, what is ICSI? ICSI is really not just setting the sperm and the egg in the dish and letting them get together themselves under their own power, as it were. It's ICSI is giving the sperm a little boost and putting it right in the egg to like make things happen. It's kind of like, you know, putting them right at the front door, uh, essentially, instead of like letting them drive around the block and figure it out for themselves. That's the next, like, in my mind, that was the next big innovation. And then I remember when we figured out how to do what we call vitrification, which is the freezing of eggs and embryos. We figured out, because for a long time, we didn't know if we take the moisture out of these cells, will they hold up and not degrade? And so that was a big breakthrough when we figured out, well, yes. Do you know when that happened? I do remember being in my late teens and seeing the first place where they had cryopreserved or frozen embryos and that they figured out how to do this specifically for, well, eggs, eggs actually, for people going through cancer treatment. So once they completed their cancer treatment, then we could go back and they could use their eggs and and have a child um, after they've gone through chemo or whatever it was. I think those that community of fertility preservation is so left out when we talk about access to care. People constantly think of the career woman who waited too long to start her family. Don't realize, first of all, it's a medical issue for so many of us, but also... For people who want to preserve their fertility because of chemo radiation, this is really important that they have access to care. Yeah, it is. And that's where like the whole freezing discussion and, you know, making sure that insurance carriers are covering these things really comes into play because it's not just on the old end of the spectrum in terms of maternal age, right? It's also on the young end of the spectrum for people who are just thinking about family planning, are not really sure yet what they want to do. And also, you know, we have so many more options now. I mean, genetic testing wasn't even a thing (laughs) when I was born. And now, you know, we can actually look at the genetic makeup of eggs and embryos. And and so, you know, it's, it's, it's come, that's where, you know, it's come so far. And then other parts of, of the process itself, have kind of lagged and stayed exactly the same. (laughs) Absolutely. And in a way, you know, we think everything's moving so fast. It is in many ways moving so fast. And and yet, um, even with awareness and education, we're not where we need to be. With, with, you know, we hear the statistics, one in eight Mm -hmm. experience infertility. You and I know it's way more than that. Sure. We also know one in four have miscarriage. We know it's more than that. Yeah. That's what's reported. Right. So when we consider fertility preservation, we consider LGBT family planning, we Mm -hmm. consider single women freezing eggs. 
all of these people accessing fertility treatments and cryopreservation yeah. um, are left out of these statistics. So yeah. it's, it's really, truly everywhere. And yet um, people think it's niche. How many times do you hear it's niche still? Oh, man. I think... Luckily, over the years, I've heard less and less people say that this is like a highly specialized thing. But I think people also underestimate the suite of options. Like people often, because I was the first IVF baby in the U.S., they pigeonhole and think just specifically about IVF. But really, there's a whole suite of fertility treatments out there, right, that you and I both know about. And it really is covering, in my mind, it covers that whole suite of options as opposed to just one, you know, one specific vertical. And people don't often think about that. The first thing a lot of people think about when they hear infertility is IVF. That's so true. And also they say just do IVF. Of course, you and I know just is like <laughs> the worst word in the world when it comes to grief or infertility grief in particular. Yeah, <laughs> Just do this or that. But just IVF should never be in the same sentence because it costs us everything, not just financially, physically, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, everything. And that's part of what, when I'm talking with people, patients, you know, I'm asked a lot, you know, how do I know that I'm ready to go through IVF? And it's really, well, first of all, it's your, what's, what you're, clinician thinks is is best for you and is recommending but then also you know beyond that what what are you up for like how how much can you take you know and have those hard to have conversations of when is enough enough what do you consider success for some people success isn't always ending up with a so baby you yeah, know I, I think that's so true that we have to redefine these milestones, um, when we talk about being on the other side of infertility, well, what does that mean? I'm still wildly infertile just because I have a baby. I can't carry a baby um, still. So I'm still infertile. And I think there's a lot of this language that people think are is kind of neutral. Yeah. That's so emotionally loaded for us who have struggled. For sure. Yeah. And as you said, you're still infertile. It's not like after you have a child or you don't have a child, you're not infertile anymore. To your point, like it is still a medical diagnosis that goes on with you. And actually, you know, come to think of it, speaking of milestones, I remember when we finally classified infertility as a disease and it took a long time for that to even happen. Yeah, and it's still not believed to be a disease because every day on Pregnantish, I'm sure every day in your world too, I correct people when they say having a child's elective. So yeah, it really shouldn't be covered. And then I point them to the World Health Organization, the CDC, and everything else that defines it as a disease. And, you know, I was told at 14, I, I would have issues carrying. For your parents, what is their response to what they're seeing today? And they must be so proud of you to be advocating this way. Yeah, I mean, I think my parents just are so far removed from the version of IVF that they went through versus all of the options that are out there now. It's like a foreign country to them, and it's a totally different language, right? So everything back when my parents went through it was considered experimental, and now everything's considered standard protocol, right. you know, um, <laughs> that they kind of set the precedent for and, and they figured out, oh, this worked this way. Let's 
Let's replicate that. Let's do that again. And interestingly, that's one of patients' biggest pain points because we did this survey of almost 1,100 patients on why they left a fertility clinic. What was the main complaint? They didn't customize. I'm not the same as your last 10 patients. Listen, we love the HCPs, the doctors in our network. Uh, we appreciate, but the the clinics that aren't innovating, the ones who aren't saying, well, this patient might need a slightly different protocol or option. Right. Because options was a pain point. When mm-hmm. patients didn't get options, they moved on. Right. Those ones won't kind of keep up against what is now very competitive as a, as a field, like sure. it or not. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things when I talk to patients, you know, and I hear this all the time, how do I know that this clinic is right for me? And obviously... You can guess some of my answers, right? Of like, it's a personal decision. You have to feel comfortable. You have to, you know, you have to look at their data. Who are they reporting to? All these kinds of things. But then there's this other level of, are they using best-in-class technology at their facility? And do you know the questions to ask in order to find out if they're using best-in-class technology at their facility? Because if you're not arming yourself with those questions in the first place, you're not actually going to have the entire picture to be able to make an informed enough decision to decide whether you should move forward or or not with them. And that's part of like, that's part of my biggest goal. And we've talked about this before is like, I want people to know all their options before they get that diagnosis of infertility. Because that is when you actually are able to look at the broad spectrum of things and gather all of this data and say, okay, here's what I need to know. And you can also start to understand, here's what I don't actually know that I need to find out. And I don't actually know what questions I should be asking when it comes to like egg freezing or, you know, who who can I talk to about what technology I should be asking about? Those are the things that to me, are critically important for patients to ask. Yes. And I think as a patient advocate and me as a patient advocate, that's part of our goal, right? To arm people with the knowledge and the empowerment to know that it's okay. It's not only okay to ask, you should ask. ask. That is what you just should do. (laughs) Yes. It's your body. Nothing's more sacred than that. You would tell your best friend to ask those questions. So tell yourself, Yeah, you know, absolutely. Absolutely. So we are after the break coming back with Tomorrow Life Sciences. What is your role there? So I'm director of product and clinic marketing. So I love this role because I get to spend a lot of time in clinics and with clinics and, you know, growing up in the industry. I love spending time in clinics. They're one of my favorite places. You're one of the few who can say that. (laughs) I love seeing staff and and labs. And, you know, I always joke that I'm science adjacent. I know just (laughs) enough, but I, you know, did not have the math or science scores to actually go into the science field. So this is like my little way of spending time with everybody that way. As a fellow journalist, I get you, Elizabeth. So Elizabeth is now part, as you know, of Tomorrow Life Sciences team, paving the way for the future of fertility. After this break, you'll hear from tomorrow's CEO and chief embryologist to talk more about cryopreservation, technology, the future of fertility. Stay tuned. We couldn't do an episode about the future of fertility without talking about the future of cryopreservation of eggs and embryos. 
The millions of frozen eggs and embryos under clinic care today are using tools and technologies that haven't been updated in decades. When Tomorrow came along, it brought much-needed innovation to IVF labs. Before tomorrow, the identification of specimens was entirely analog, with small handwritten or printed labels to keep track of them. Storage management was completely manual, requiring a lot of time and human intervention. The risk from these antiquated processes has led to mistakes, losses, and mix-ups, frequently mentioned in the news. Through the sophisticated platform, Tomorrow digitally tracks frozen eggs and embryos, offering transparency directly to patients for the first time. Their solution also removes most of the manual steps in the current cryomanagement process, significantly reducing the possibility of error. And to top it off, their technology is always on, ensuring patients' precious eggs and embryos are safely monitored 24-7. To learn more or talk to your healthcare provider about storing your eggs or embryos with Tomorrow, visit tomorrow.org. T-M-R-W.org. So I'm in the studio now with great members of the Tomorrow Life Sciences team, Tara Comont and Cynthia Hudson. Welcome to the Pregnant Podcast. Thank you so much for having us. Thank I'm you. so happy you're here. And, and it's great know, to see you again. Oh my gosh, to see you. I, we've spent a lot of time lately. We have. Which is we exciting. Have. And I love what you guys are doing. But I, you know, for those who don't know tomorrow, that's what we're going to get into. And I think, Tara, it's so interesting. I do want to start with you because... When I first met you, I was fascinated by your background. So for those who don't know, before joining this amazing team, what's your professional background and what drew you to this company? So I I joined the board of Tomorrow Life Sciences four years ago, really when it was an idea. And I was so excited by the thought of everything that the company was building, the problem that we were solving and the ability to to solve it and help fertility clinics and fertility patients using technology to scale. So it was a very hard opportunity to turn down um, when the CEO opportunity came up last year. And I would say the the concept of technology enabling change and technology bettering experience, whether it be for an industry or for an end user, is sort of the common theme throughout my career, albeit the industries in which I've worked are quite different. So before tomorrow, I was president and CFO of Shake Shack, um, which is a fantastic global organization, great fun to be part of, very fast-growing company, but also embracing technology, which restaurants don't typically think of as being core to their customer experience, but increasingly is. Prior to that, spent uh, a decade or more, probably closer to two, um, <laughs> in various media and advertising and uh, digital content businesses. So actually, the theme of technology and transformation and growth is sort of the common thread that actually weaves all these things together and certainly what we're very focused on at Tomorrow. I love it. And, and, and innovation, of course, because all of these companies, and this is our innovation series that Pregnant this podcast is part of, the innovation that you've been at the forefront of with these companies is is incredible. Each, each of these companies has been going through transformational type journeys with innovation at their core. And I think it's hard to find an example in the last 10 years where innovation hasn't had technology at its core. So absolutely. So the question I always ask people connected to something so innovative and new is why now? Why, why is this technology, this platform, this change happening now? It's a great question. 
I think in order to understand the why now, you have to take a step back a little bit. Human IVF is just over 40 years old. And in those 40 years, there have been incredible medical advancements. I'm sure Cynthia will touch on as it relates to the medical side of the business or the medical side of the field, whether it be being able to freeze your eggs and embryos or genetic testing or a whole host of other things. 40 years in, however, the technology <laughs> and the tools that support the growth in the, in the field, which has a long way to go, the tools and the technology haven't really kept up. And particularly when it comes to keeping up with the volume of specimens now being frozen, now being cryopreserved, which is increasingly the norm. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sure we'll get into that. So why now? We're at a point 15 years into vitrification where the 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 field really can't contemplate the next 40 years without embracing a different way of doing things. And the way, it's not unique to this field, the way businesses scale generally is through is through technology and innovation. And in our case, that's certainly what we're very focused on. We're less focused on how this is how this this part of the the lab has been managed in the past, and much more so around how do we bring increased levels of safety going forward? How do we bring increased levels of traceability of these specimens going forward? And how do we bring increased levels of transparency, both for clinics and for patients, where typically this, where, where are my eggs or embryos stored, has been a bit of a black hole for patients. I think our, our audience would be surprised how much has stayed analog. And yet we know, I was a long-time uh, fertility treatment patient, I would get my follicle count you know, the size is written on a scrap piece of paper. So <laughs> I think in a way, we've seen paper in the labs, I mean, in the in the clinics, I should say. But Cynthia, you know the labs intimately. What is your role at Tomorrow Life Sciences? And what is your background that brought you to this company? My background is I sort of grew up in the laboratory. So I started my career as a as a medical technologist. There was an IVF program in the hospital I was working at. I was in Massachusetts, and and it was just fascinating to me, like what, what eggs and sperm and putting them together. Wait, and I get to do that all by myself, and and it was really exciting. And so, I mean, that's that's basically where I grew up. And so, you know, over the years, it was okay. Well, you know, you you've got to a point where you're at the senior level, and now you know you're being asked to help train other people and you're being asked to help do troubleshooting and there's a physician that wants to open their own lab and there's, you know, I mean, there's there's compliance issues where this this clinic wants to become accredited by a certain organization. And so it developed into a, a consulting business very early on for me. And I, at one point, had, you know, half a dozen different private practice clinics under management and I was either performing the procedures myself, I had people working for me and, you know, doing any number of things, you know, within the United States and internationally. I decided to open my own lab because why not? But, I mean, really, you know, all of this was how can I make the most of what I have and how can I improve on the process? And so I ended up basically spending all of my time just trying to keep up with the volume, keep up with the the standards of care, but I couldn't really do anything to make it better. I couldn't really solve all the problems that were so patently obvious to me. And what were the biggest problems patently obvious to you? It's so labor intensive. The documentation is 100% analog. There's no other way than to record observations, write them down. Maybe you run over to a computer and then type those things into a computer. I've got to you know, again, I've got to figure out what I'm going to do with what and when. I have to, you know, 
record those data somewhere. I have to do all the quality control on my equipment. I have to record all of those data somewhere. I've got to maintain now this growing cryo store. And all I can do is just keep perpetuating the same system so I can buy more tanks, but I don't have any other tools to do what I need. So, you know, we've come a long way in the sense of we can grow embryos out to the blastocyst stage. You know, we never used to be able to do that. We can screen these embryos and we can say, well, if we get a bunch of eggs, is there a baby in there or not? And if there is one, how can we get to that faster? So what are the tools that we can develop and employ to get to that baby faster? So shorten time to pregnancy. Um, and this is critical for everybody, right? We don't want to waste time. We don't want to do futile transfers so we can genetically screen embryos. We can use AI and we can say, okay, based on these characteristics, this is a better chance of making a baby than this one. So all of these areas, you know, that we can employ. But if you think about it, most of this is coming from the outside. It's not coming from the inside. And so it became obvious to me that in order for me to actually affect some change on the actual process, it wasn't enough to just keep doing what I was doing every day and doing it the best I can. You've got to take it to the next level. Yeah, it's, uh, it sounds exhausting to have to run around. And you're literally, I know it's your tagline at tomorrow, at, you know, the precious cells, uh, right? But you're literally handling people's most precious material in the world, literally nothing more important to them. And it sounds a bit chaotic. It's an amazing job, right? I mean, it's so empowering. Like you are sitting there. This is, I am holding your potential parenthood in my hands. Like I am making this happen. I'm taking that sperm. I'm taking that egg. It's enormously gratifying. It, you know, uh, I mean, I have two nieces, you know, I think they came out okay. You know, I mean, I sort of made that happen. Um, but it's but it's really hard. You know, it's a lot to keep track of. And so, you know, we're talking about building capacity, right? So how do you increase capacity in order to, um, improve access to care. You know, we know there's millions and millions of people that don't have access to care. And we haven't changed the systems in a way that is scalable and is sustainable. And so we need better tools. We need technology. We need to be able to say, how can I sort of process more patients safer, faster, reduce risk, make it reproducible, and stop taking these sort of artisanal boutique, okay, well, this clinic does it this way, and this clinic does it this way. You know, how can we kind of standardize certain things using best practices, using technology, and then kind of raising the bar for everybody? So cryopreservation, what has changed even in the last decade that you've seen working in this field? Cryopreservation basically is taking these cells, these, you know, either excess, you know, you know, extra embryos that we're not putting back or, you know, embryos that we're going to test or eggs that, you know, we don't plan to do anything with, taking them and freezing them and then, you know, storing them until the, you know, the intended parent or, you know, whoever is ready to use them. So it's, it's a laborious process. If the patient has 25 eggs, all 25 of those eggs have to be labeled, frozen, written down all of my cryo storage information, you know, all of my metadata, this egg looks like this, this is embryo number four, this is the grade of that embryo, all of these things have to be labeled, individually frozen. It's a process where it really hasn't been automated. There, there are a few sort of early prototypes out there, but it's an area ripe for innovation and it's an area ripe for for standardization, because there's a certain protocol, we have to take those cells, we have to remove the water, and we have to put them into a minus 196 degree environment. To cryo, to cryopreserve them? To cryopreserve them. So, you know, lots of treatments are intended for cryopreservation only. 
now where they weren't back then. And I know this is, you know, this is always a question for patients, you know, is it better to freeze them or is it better to put them back fresh? And, you know, there's lots of reasons to do one versus the other, but this gives us much more in the way of options to manage those patients. I'm always surprised that embryo grading is so different clinic to clinic. So, you know, you're in these infertility groups online and someone says, I have a 6AB, blah, blah, blah. And they're just sharing all the numbers and the letters. Nothing seems standardized. It's not. And there's no requirement to do so. There's no thing that says you have to grade it based on this date of development, you know, and it looks in this particular way. There's, there is nothing that says you have to standardize so that. So part of it is, I, it sounds like tomorrow, tomorrow is also just trying to standardize processes and simplify processes. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we, we believe, whether it be within cryopreservation or further into the lab, that technology will play a very significant role in the next handful of years and certainly the next 40. If we're looking back at the last 40, what do the next 40 look like? whether they be the Tomorrow platform where we reduce a significant number of manual steps, which by doing so, we reduce the, the opportunity for human error. We increase scale. We increase safety. We increase transparency and absolutely standardized process. And we use technology and automation to do it. Or further into the lab, whereas you talk about grading or other parts of the process where you have AI beginning to play in, the use of big data, I think, you know, machine vision, computer vision will start to come into play. We obviously have robotics in our, in our solution. All of these different things can play a role. There are a lot of different companies entering the space. But as they start to weave together, I think you will see much more precision, number one. And as a result, greater standardization, number two. And our vision is for that to all lead to greater throughput and scale, allowing greater access for patients. And I think we've got many, many industries and many, many decades of, of um, examples where technology has allowed significant step-ups in scale and significant step-downs in cost. And that's the broader vision. And actually, just to go back to your question on why now, listening to Cynthia again describe the process, the thought that today, and I'm an IVF mum too, as you know, so the thought that still today in 2022, an embryologist is going through the type of process that Cynthia describes and handwriting my name on a, or maybe if you're really sophisticated, you're printing a label. Um, but for the most part, I'm handwriting a name on a tiny little label smaller than the size of a penny and dunking it in a tank full of liquid nitrogen by hand is just unbelievable, I think, to us. So why now? We're past the point of, of, of needing to change. Yes. And, you know, for a, a service like IVF, that is not a cheap service for the user, then why, why is what's happening in certain parts of it so analog? I mean, it just doesn't even make sense. What's the motivation for them necessarily to change? Into, well, it works great. And, you know, I've never had a problem. So why don't I do that? But I mean, I think we're, you know, we're basically at a tipping point, right? Something's got to give. I mean, it was easier to manage when you had, you know, maybe a couple of hundred patients a year and the primary choice for the treatment was a fresh embryo transfer and we weren't freezing eggs. And so your cryo storage was just, it was very, very manageable. Okay. We've now, let's shift to 2022, right? Most of the embryos, you know, that we create in the laboratory are being frozen first, either for for screening, you know, as we try to shorten time to pregnancy, or that maybe the mother isn't 
her uterus isn't receptive, right? And maybe it's not the right time to put that embryo back. So we don't want to put a good embryo in a bad uterus, right? So, you know, like for any number of reasons, you know, and then think about egg freezing, right? I mean, now we're freezing eggs where we never were before. And it's gone up hundreds of times. We all know that. If we're following future fertility trends, egg freezing is booming. It's skyrocketing. So now there's all of this tissue coming into the laboratory. It's immediately being frozen. And most of it, let's be honest, is not coming out of storage. You know, the rates of people coming back for frozen eggs at this point is is under 20%. Can we talk about that? That's something I don't think people think about or want to think about. But it's almost like hoarding at that level where we, we have a lot of material, right? Eggs and embryos frozen in time in labs that have been not necessarily abandoned, not even consciously forgotten about, but they're hanging out. Yeah. I'm a good example. I have six embryos in storage. They've been there for eight years and they're not going anywhere. <laughs> I have I have I have a few back there as well. Yeah, so it it does make us all wonder where are they all going to live as all of these treatments increase. I think um where they're going to live or how they're going to be managed. Right. I think there's a lot of flexibility in how, how and where they, where, do, where do they live. Sure, should they live in it? Today, they all live in a clinic. Anyone that's been in a fertility clinic knows, for the most part, they're relatively real estate constrained. You know, these aren't big sprawling centers. They're in the middle of city centers, right? So they're probably not, over the long term, going to live in clinics. They don't need to be in a clinic taking up space. They can go off-site. So tomorrow is opening, in the, in the next few weeks, actually, our first New York City off-site biorepository. So as we go to a clinic with this scalable technology, they'll have an in-clinic solution for some of those more recent freezers. And as they age out, they can take them off-site. So that's sort of the where. But for me, it's actually the, the how, right? How are they managed? Because if we don't change the how, you don't really get the benefits of the safety and the transparency today. It is this kind of black hole for a clinic and a patient. So the digitization of that inventory, I think, is a really important part of the, of the value proposition of what tomorrow does. And we don't want to assert, of course, and I know we all know, like, there are a lot of clinics doing great work and not mixing up specimens, but we've seen the trending news of mix-ups and losing mm-hmm. embryos, class action suits. Yep. Mm-hmm. So that's a hard thing to talk about, but it's out there, right? What What are some cases that you've heard about? Well, I mean, certainly the very famous, um, quite close in time together, you know, those um, mishap, tank mishaps, one in Cleveland and then one in San Francisco, right? I mean, those are sort of most people know about that. You know, it's, it's horrifying. It's tragic. Um, what can we do to introduce a better way to do it? Like, how can we use technology? How can we use tools? Well, you know, we can have uh, a monitoring system that the clinic t- can't turn off, right? So tomorrow has an you know, what we call Overwatch. And so this is now a system whereby we have an operations center. It's fully staffed. And the entire objective of that, and frankly, the rest of the company, is to make sure that these specimens are safe. It's like egg and embryo sitting. And, you know, to your point about clinics, no one's doing anything wrong per se. They haven't had the tools. And and, and experts from outside of the field needed to come in and provide them. And we're happy to do that so that we can divert those people's time, the embryologists and the physicians, back to patients and use technology to throw off, in our case, thousands of data points over the course of a day that we can monitor 24-7, 365 days a year and give huge peace of mind 
to patients and also to clinicians. And, you know, that's, that's the objective here. It's a great objective. What do you think the future looks like of cryopreservation? Do you think, I mean, I have this image, and I don't know if it's true, but I've covered relationship trends my whole career. And I think that for people sweet 16s or maybe when they graduate university, I don't know at what milestone this will happen. Ache freezing is going to be like, yeah, a rite of passage. We're doing it with my, I'm doing it with my friends. We had people from Bachelor Nation on the podcast, you know, former Bachelor stars. They did egg freezing parties. They they did it together. Is that what the future looks like? If you have to guess what cryopreservation looks like, and of course, hopefully using your technology and platform, but what do you think it is? It, absolutely. And the reason is because it offers so much more in the way of choice, right? So if I freeze my eggs, then I don't have the pressure to find the right partner. I don't have the pressure to get pregnant now when I might be just starting a new career. You know, I mean, it just, the optionality is is immense. And it's not just for, you know, for heterosexual couples, right? I mean, it's for, for gay couples. It's for, you know, it's for anybody that wants to have an option in the future. Oh, it's radically going to change not just relationships, but dating. Right. Because when, you, when you're freezing that, yeah. um, we have data on that, actually, that we know that people date better mm-hmm. when they've frozen their eggs because, sure. and it makes sense. Pressure's off. Takes uh, pressure's, pressure's off, off for both sides. Yeah. And again, not just in heterosexual p- pairs. Yeah, of course. Anyone who dreams in the future of having a baby. But Cynthia, knowing this technology in the lab, on the lab side too, how long do you think you can freeze an egg or an embryo? Oh, indefinitely. Indefinitely? Indefinitely. What if in the next 50 years, you know, I have a three-year-old, lifespan has increased significantly. She could, 80 years later. She freezes her eggs and 80 years later, she decides she wants to become a mom. I mean, um, you know. That might be a bit tricky, but (laughs) yeah. (laughs) We don't know what 90 (laughs) looks like in the future, but yeah. Listen, what we do know is that the rate of success is based on the age of the egg. You know, we know that. One one thing I would add to that, though, in terms of what the future holds as it relates to egg freezing is the cost needs to come down. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's an important, you know, we say it's going to become the norm. And I think it will in many respects. And I think it will become the de facto 21st birthday present in many respects. But the cost needs to come down for even egg freezing to be accessible. It is still a very expensive process to go through. And again, that's where we're very focused. That's where we believe growth, scale, technology, figuring out how to mm-hmm. open up this actually quite self-constrained field mm-hmm. with only 2% of births in the U.S. being IVF births. But as we know, one in eight people struggling with infertility, that's a huge gap. And, and it's heavily linked to cost and access. So In this country, for sure. For sure. I love that. I've, I've joked, and it's not such a joke. I'm, I'm kind of serious, but I've said to our audience often at Pregnish, it's a great time to be infertile. <laughs> just right. because you got a little levity just, right. you know, well, you know, you know what it is it's just that 15 years ago people didn't have and that's to your point we can't blame clinics that this wasn't even an option it wasn't available so now we're just trying to keep up with what may be possible and boy does the future look exciting thank you so much for being on the pregnant podcast thank De- you for having us it yeah, was great thank to be you here. so much great to see you again Well, I wanted to invite my recent fertility friend, we see each other at a lot of conferences and advocacy efforts in New York City, Alexa Sorrell, onto the podcast. We're also both moms, thanks to gestational surrogacy. And we both worked with the New York team to lobby Congress to get compensated surrogacy 
legalized in the state of New York. So we share a lot and she's a great fertility lawyer. So I'm just so happy to have you on the Pregnish Podcast. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm psyched. You know, we've today on the show, we've talked about the history of IVF. We've talked with the Tomorrow Life Sciences team about hopefully what the future looks like without mix-ups and errors. What have you seen in terms of, you know, fertility law changing? How long have you practiced? And what are some of the unexpected cases I think people wouldn't realize you're dealing with in this world? Well, I think the biggest, newest thing really, and it's across the country because New York is who New York is, is that our law is new in New York. People spoke about it for so long as, quote, the surrogacy law, right? But it's really so much more far-reaching than that. We completely overhauled New York's definition of legal parentage and it made it gender neutral. We have made it parenting for through assisted any form of assisted reproduction, not just surrogacy, but donor arrangements, et cetera, much more user-friendly, much more equal. Um, we've made it possible to get judgments of parentage streamlined. So I think the biggest thing really is that New York is now up to speed, you know, and participating with the rest of the country in recognizing parentage and and um, sec- that security for the children who are conceived with assisted reproduction. As far as as far as I go, I've incorporated that into my uh, other family law practice only most recently since it's been legalized at the beginning of 2021 here. But I see so much overlap in kind of all forms of family law. So there are implications in the divorce context. There are implications in legal parentage. There are implications with embryos dispositions. There's implications with trust and estate. So really what I'm seeing is that family law practitioners of all kinds are opening their eyes to how prevalent children conceived with ART. And ART, for those who don't know, assisted reproductive technology. Right. Yeah. I mean, how many people didn't expect to build their lives with science, their, their families rather, with science, and then they have to be protected Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and new things come up every day. Whereas 30 years ago, we wouldn't have anticipated that we could necessarily do IVF. Well, then we got used to that and we started doing anonymous donor arrangements, right? And then the anonymous donor arrangements, we have contracts that say, you know, how to protect anonymity and confidentiality and privacy. And then, oops, there we go. 23andMe comes out, right? And so now we're having trends that encourage more um, open donations. And that's, it will just probably continue to evolve as science does. Well, a big, yeah, that's so interesting. A big theme of today that we were talking about is transparency and feeling both as a patient and a provider on both sides that processes need, hopefully, to be better as we, this area explodes, we see more and more fertility startups, more and more clinics opening, more and more people using ART to build their families. And yet we're still not fully aligned on the protection we need to make those things happen. So in in terms of the patient side, when you are a patient and you are cryopreserving, that's a lot of what we've talked about today. What kind of protection, what kind of things do you need to look out for, ask about make sure are handled by your clinic from a legal perspective to protect yourself? 
Such a good question. Such a good question because one of the first things that you're asked to do as a patient, right, is to fill out a stack of forms. And the forms are hard to decipher even for a trained lawyer. So you think about someone who's in this vulnerable, emotional, psychological, vulnerable position and filling these things out. Do, do we stop and, and read them? Do we consult with, with counsel before we say, no, we sign away and we say, let's get moving. Let's, let's build my family. One of the most important messages, and I think this applies just you know equally to providers and to patients is stop and realize that these forms can and actually really do have profound um, impact down the road on things like what will happen to your embryos if you or your partner dies, what will happen to your embryos if you um, are in a divorce litigation. So, you know, slow down and, and really take the time to say, I need, I need 24 hours. I need a week, you know, to your clinic. I need to consult with a lawyer. I need to read this more carefully. I need to talk to my partner about it and not just put his or her initials next to what I think should be the you know, disposition selection, which is what happens. And it's nobody's fault, but I do think that the provider should encourage people to reach out to a lawyer, reach out to somebody. And, and when more and more in my practice, I'm also do, encouraging people to have agreements between each other because really when you're filling a form out at a clinic, that's where you're directive to the clinic. That's what you're saying to the storage facility or or to the providers. Here's what I here's what I'm authorizing directing you to do with my stored genetic material. It's not a binding agreement between you and your partner. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because I think especially I know as a fertility treatment patient, oftentimes you're signing these things uh, like you said, you want to get going, but also you're literally maybe about to go in for an egg retrieval or you're you're like in motion in one of these steps. So you're not really reading the fine print and it has these decades long implications, especially when you freeze. We've seen, you know, I've of course tracked relationship trends for years and I want to hear about what you're dealing with like embryo divorce court. <laughs> like this is a big deal, right? When you have frozen specimens and you are no longer with your partner and one wants to use this embryo and one doesn't. What what happens? So I don't want to bore people like, you know, lawyers that like we get all geek out and stuff and thinking about things, but I'll just like, keep it like low level geek. But here's what we have to what we think about is that in the context of divorce, we, we're primarily dealing with two things when there are children, right? We're dealing with disposition of property, marital property, and we're dealing with custody of children, which usually goes with a best interest analysis. What the courts are saying across the country and the trend is that embryos really are neither, right? They're not persons and they're not property. So what is the analysis for how a court, if called upon to to decide this issue, uh, would use. And, and there's varying approaches that courts are taking. But really, the most common theme is we want to enforce what the written agreement is between you, the partners. So whether that's found in the clinic form or in a subsequent agreement between the two of them. But we don't want to force parentage on somebody. So unless there's kind of like a contemporaneous, meaning at the time you're ratifying, yes, my partner can use these to procreate, their trend really is that it wouldn't be enforced to uh, allow one partner to conceive without the other's consent. Now, here's a huge asterisk, right? A huge asterisk is a big part of that issue is that 
some people say, oh, I, I'm not opposed to my partner using it, but I don't want to be on the hook for child support, right? So here's another geek out lawyer thing, which is it's against public policy to contract out of child support obligations. Well, in New York, we have a new law kind of tries to allow, uh, you know, get around that issue. And we have what's called embryo disposition agreements, where you essentially, if you were a former intended parent, you created an embryo during your marriage with your spouse, with the intent to be a parent, you can now essentially become a donor. Donate your interest in that to your spouse who can then use it to conceive a child post-divorce and there will be no parentage and therefore no support obligation. Such a modern thing to navigate. And I think people, you know, none of us when we underwent IVF thought of these things oftentimes because, but you think of prenups when you get married, you think of other things and literally what is the most irreversible decision? Having a child. (laughs) Like there's a lot that you can change if you're not happy with the life decision, but children is not one of those things. So of course we have to pay attention to this. Now we had on our podcast someone, and we're going to have another guest like this, who was so thankful to sign paperwork at her clinic because her husband had a brain tumor, died. She's now expecting with his baby. And she she is trying to raise the awareness that clinics should have a checkbox for like, what if your partner dies and you didn't expect that? Should you be able to use that embryo? Have you dealt with these cases? Yes. And that's what I meant when I was talking about like how there's trust and estates implications, there's divorce. So this is called posthumous reproduction, right? So reproducing post-life, post after your death. And states the states differ on the laws and those forms have to be filled out every seven years for obvious reasons. Like you can, you can forget that you do it. And then some, you know, you're doing something else medically and, and you're called upon to review it again. So again, it's state specific, but totally these are these issues. There was a, there was a gut-wrenching case a few years ago here in New York with a, a cadet, a young, a young man who was killed um, and his parents wanted to use his frozen sperm to conceive their grandchild. So it's like, who who would have ever thought? We hear, I've heard from grandparents with this ask, and it's a quandary on so many levels, and it's just heartbreaking. What do you, you know, this is this episode is the future of fertility. From where you sit, what do you think that future looks like? Oh, it's that's such a good question. You know, I think probably it's a it's a combination of so many factors, societal being a huge one. And I do think society and the law is catching up a little bit with science, but definitely lagging. Are we going to have an option on medical forms soon, I hope, to designate, were you a donor-conceived child? Those types of things, right? Just broadening awareness and realizing that it impacts so much and so many more people than you know are impacted. Me as a divorce lawyer, I, I... have to remind myself too, as I'm going through and saying, what, you know, where do you own real estate? Where are your bank accounts? Where are your investments? How about, do you have frozen gametes? Right. I mean, so just to start thinking about the discussion being more, much more not defaulting to a presumption that somebody is not a, 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 a you know, a, a donor conceived child, a, a child born of assist, any form of assisted reproduction. So I hope that that's, that will be. And there's so many, you know, there are children's books being written now. Um, hopefully, 
it'll be tough. This is controversial. I know, you know, teach, teach in school that there are so many different ways to have a family and family makeups look so different to just bring everyone in line societally uh, in the same acknowledging just it's reality. It is reality. It is the reality. And it's too many people are affected by this for us to pretend it's not. <laughs> so whether or not we we all like to believe most babies are made through by, you know, old fashioned sex between a man and a woman, that is not the present, nor is it probably the future all the time. Right. Absolutely. Where can people find you, Alexis, for more? I'm a partner at uh, Warshaw Burstein in in New York City. Um, I started the fertility law group there, and also a partner in the matrimonial in the matrimonial department. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being on the Pregnantish Podcast. Thank you. It's always fun talking to you. Yes, it is. And thank you for listening to another episode of Pregnantish, where we tell the story of the extraordinary lengths that people go to to create their families and the science and technology that supports them along the way. Until next time.